Section Ten of Hunger by Knut Hompson, translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three continued. I woke in a sweat the next morning, moist all over, my whole body bathed in dampness. The fever had laid violent hands on me. At first, I had no clear idea of what had happened to me. I looked about me in amazement, felt a complete transformation of my being absolutely failed to recognize myself again. I felt along my own arms and down my legs, was struck with astonishment that the window was where it was, and not in the opposite wall, and I could hear the tramp of horses' feet in the yard below, as if it came from above me. I felt rather sick, too, qualmish. My hair clung wet and cold about my forehead. I raised myself on my elbows and looked at the pillow damp hair lay on it too, in patches. My feet had swelled up in my shoes during the night, but they caused me no pain, only I could not move my toes much, they were too stiff. As the afternoon closed in, and it had already begun to grow a little dusk, I got up out of bed and commenced to move about the room a little. I felt my way with short careful steps, taking care to keep my balance and spare my feet as much as possible. I did not suffer much, and I did not cry. Neither was I, taking all into consideration, sad. On the contrary, I was blissfully content. It did not strike me just then that anything could be otherwise than it was. Then I went out. The only thing that troubled me a little, in spite of the nausea that the thought of food inspired in me, was hunger. I commenced to be sensible of a shameless appetite again, a ravenous lust of food which grew steadily worse and worse. It gnawed unmercifully in my breast, carrying on a silent, mysterious work in there. It was as if a score of diminutive, gnome-like insects set their heads on one side and gnawed for a little, then laid their hands on the other side and gnawed a little more, then lay quite still for a moment's space, and then began afresh, boring noiselessly in, and without any haste, and left empty spaces everywhere after them as they went on. I was not ill, but faint. I broke into a sweat. I thought of going to the market-place to rest a while, but the way was long and wearisome. At last I had almost reached it. I stood at the corner of the market and Market Street. The sweat ran down into my eyes and blinded me, and I had just stopped in order to wipe it away a little. I did not notice the place I was standing in, in fact, I did not think about it. The noise around me was something frightful. Suddenly a call rings out, a cold, sharp warning. I hear this cry, hear it quite well, and I start nervously to one side, stepping as quickly as my bad foot allows me to. A monster of a bread-van brushes past me, and the wheel grazes my coat. I might perhaps have been a little quicker if I had exerted myself. Well, there was no help for it. One foot pained me, a couple of toes were crunched. I felt that they, as it were, curled up in my shoes. The driver reins in his horse with all his might. He turns round on the van and inquires in a fright how it fares with me. Oh, it might have been worse, far worse. It was perhaps not so dangerous. I didn't think any bones were broken. Oh, pray. I rushed over as quickly as I could to a seat. All these people who stopped and stared at me abashed me. 
After all, it was no mortal blow, comparatively speaking. I had got off luckily enough, as misfortune was bound to come in my way. The worst thing was that my shoe was crushed to pieces. The sole was torn loose at the toe. I help up my foot and saw blood inside the gap. Well, it wasn't intentional on either side. It was not the man's purpose to make things worse for me than they were. He looked much concerned about it. It was quite certain that if I had begged him for a piece of bread out of his cart, he would have given it to me. He would certainly have given it to me gladly. God bless him in return, wherever he is. I was terribly hungry, and I did not know what to do with myself and my shameless appetite. I writhed from side to side on the seat, and bowed my chest right down to my knees. I was almost distracted. When it got dark I jogged down to the town hall, God knows how I got there, and sat on the edge of the balustrade. I tore a pocket out of my coat and took to chewing it, not with any defined object, but with dour mien and unseeing eyes staring straight into space. I could hear a group of little children playing round near me, and perceive, in an instinctive sort of way, some pedestrians pass me by. Otherwise I observed nothing. All at once it enters my head to go to one of the meat bazaars underneath me and beg a piece of raw meat. I go straight along the balustrade to the other side of the bazaar buildings and descend the steps. When I had nearly reached the stalls on the lower floor, I called up the archway leading to the stairs and made a threatening backward gesture as if I were talking to a dog up there and boldly addressed the first butcher I met. Ah. Will you be kind enough to give me a bone for my dog?" I said. Only a bone, there needn't be anything on it. It's just to give him something to carry in his mouth. I got the bone, a capital little bone, on which there still remained a morsel of meat, and hid it under my coat. I thanked the man so heartily that he looked at me in amazement. Oh, no need of thanks, said he. Oh, yes, didn't say that, I mumbled. It is kindly done of you and I ascended the steps again. My heart was throbbing violently in my breast. I sneaked into one of the passages where the forges are, as far as I could go, and stopped outside a dilapidated door leading to a back yard. There was no light to be seen anywhere, only blessed darkness all around me, and I began to gnaw at my bone. It had no taste, a rank smell of blood oozed from it and I was forced to vomit almost immediately. I tried anew. If I could only keep it down, it would, in spite of all, have some effect. It was simply a matter of forcing it to remain down there, but I vomited again. I grew wild, bit angrily into the meat, tore off a morsel, and gulped it down by sheer strength of will. And yet it was of no use. Just as soon as the little fragments of meat became warm in my stomach, up they came again. Worse luck. I clenched my hands in frenzy, burst into tears from sheer helplessness, and gnawed away as one possessed. I cried so that the bone got wet and dirty with my tears, vomited, cursed and groaned again, cried as if my heart would break, and vomited anew. I consigned all the powers that be to the lowermost torture in the loudest voice. Quiet, not a soul about, no light, no noise. 
I am in a state of the most fearful excitement. I breathe hardly and audibly, and I cry with gnashing teeth, each time that the morsel of meat, which might satisfy me a little, comes up. As I find that, in spite of all my efforts, it avails me not, I cast the bone at the door. I am filled with the most impotent hate, shriek and menace with my fists towards heaven, yell God's name hoarsely, and bend my fingers like claws with ill-suppressed fury. I tell you, you heaven's holy Baal, you don't exist. But that, if you did, I would curse you so that your heaven would quiver with the fire of hell. I tell you, I have offered you my service, and you repulsed me, and I turn my back on you for all eternity, because you do not know your time of visitation. I tell you that I am about to die, and yet I mock you. You heaven god and apis! With death staring me in the face, I tell you, I would rather be a bondsman in hell than a freedman in your mansions. I tell you, I am filled with a blissful contempt for your divine paltriness, and I choose the abyss of destruction for a personal resort, where the devils Judas and Pharaoh are cast down. I tell you your heaven is full of the kingdom of the earth's most crass-headed idiots and poverty-stricken in spirit. I tell you, you have filled your heaven with the grossest and most cherished harlots from here below, who have bent their knees piteously before you at their hour of death. I tell you, you have used force against me, and you know not, you omniscient nullity, that I never bend in opposition. I tell you, all my life, every cell in my body, every power in my soul, gasps to mock you, you gracious monster on high. I tell you, I would, if I could, breathe it into every human soul, every flower, every leaf, every dewdrop in the garden. I tell you, I would scoff you on the day of doom, and curse the teeth out of my mouth for the sake of your deity's boundless miserableness. I tell you, from this hour, I renounce all thy works and all thy pomps. I will execrate my thought if it dwells on you again and tear out my lips if they ever utter your name. I tell you, if you exist, my last word in life or in death, I bid you farewell, for all time and eternity, I bid you farewell, with heart and reins, I bid you the last irrevocable farewell, and I am silent, and turn my back on you, and go my way. Quiet. I tremble with excitement and exhaustion and stand on the same spot, still whispering oaths and abusive epithets, hiccoughing after the last violent crying fit, broken down and apathetic after my frenzied outburst of rage. I stand there for maybe an hour, hiccough and whisper, and hold on to the door. Then I hear voices, a conversation between two men who are coming down the passage. I slink away from the door, drag myself along the walls of the houses, and come out again into the light streets. As I jog along Young's Hill, my brain begins to work in a most peculiar direction. It occurs to me that the wretched hovels down at the corner of the marketplace, the stores for loose materials, the old booths for second-hand clothes, are really a disgrace to the place. They spoilt the whole appearance of the market, and were a blot on the town. Fie! Away with the rubbish! and I turned over in my mind as I walked on what it would cost to remove the geographical survey down there. 
that handsome building which had always attracted me so much each time I passed it. It would perhaps not be possible to undertake a removal of that kind under two or three hundred pounds. A pretty sum, three hundred pounds. One must admit, a tidy enough little sum for pocket money, ha ha, just to make a start with, eh? And I nodded my head and conceded that it was a tidy enough bit of pocket money to make a start with. I was still trembling over my whole body, and hiccuffed now and then, violently after my cry. I had a feeling that there was not much life left in me, and I was really singing my last verse. It was almost a matter of indifference to me. It did not trouble me in the least. On the contrary, I wended my way downtown, down to the wharf, farther and farther away from my room. I would, for that matter, have willingly laid myself down flat in the street to die. My sufferings were rendering me more and more callous. My sore foot throbbed violently. I had a sensation as if the pain was creeping up through my whole leg. But not even that caused me any particular distress. I had endured worse sensations. In this manner I reached the railway wharf. There was no traffic, no noise, only here and there a person to be seen, a laborer or sailor slinking round with their hands in their pockets. I took notice of a lame man who looked sharply at me as we passed one another. I stopped him instinctively, touched my hat, and inquired if he knew if the nun had sailed. Some way I couldn't help snapping my fingers right under the man's nose and saying, Aye, by Jove, the nun, yes, the nun, which I had totally forgotten. All the same, the thought of her had been smoldering in me. I had carried it about unconsciously. Yes, bless me, the nun had sailed. He couldn't tell me where she had sailed to. The man reflects, stands on his long leg, keeps the other up in the air. It dangles a little. No, he replies. Do you know what cargo she was taking in here? No, I answer, but by this time I had already lost interest in the nun, and I asked the man how far it might be to Holmstrand, reckoned in good old geographical miles. To Holmstrand, I should think, or to Voblingsness. What was I going to say? I should think to Holmstrand. Oh, never mind, I have just remembered it. I interrupted him again. You wouldn't perhaps be so kind as to give me a small bit of tobacco, only a tiny scrap. I received the tobacco, thanked the man heartily, and went on. I made no use of the tobacco, I put it into my pocket. He still kept his eye on me. Perhaps I had aroused his suspicions in some way or another. Whether I stood still or walked on, I felt his suspicious look following me. I had no mind to be persecuted by this creature. I turn round, and dragging myself back to him, say, Binder. Only this one word binder, no more. I looked fixedly at him as I say it. Indeed, I was conscious of staring fearfully at him. It was as if I saw him with my entire body instead of only with my eyes. I stare for a while after I give utterance to this word, and then I jog along to the railway square. The man does not utter a syllable, he only keeps his gaze fixed on me. Binder! I stood suddenly still. Yes, wasn't that just what I had a feeling of the moment I met the old chap? A feeling that I had met him before. One bright morning up in Gronson, when I pawned my waistcoat, 
It seemed to me an eternity since that day. Whilst I stand and ponder over this, I lean and support myself against a house wall at the corner of the railway square and Harbor Street. Suddenly I start quickly and make an effort to crawl away. As I do not succeed in it, I stare case-hardened ahead of me and fling all shame to the winds. There is no help for it. I am standing face to face with the Commodore. I get devil-may-care brazen. I take a step farther from the wall in order to make him notice me. I do not do it to awake his compassion, but to mortify myself, place myself, as it were, on the pillory. I could have flung myself down in the street and begged him to walk over me, tread on my face. I don't even bid him good morning. Perhaps the Commodore guesses that something is amiss with me. He slackens his pace a little, and I say, in order to stop him, I would have called upon you long ago with something, but nothing has come yet. Indeed, he replies, in an interrogative tone. You haven't finished it yet, then? No, it didn't get finished. My eyes by this time are filled with tears at his friendliness, and I cough with a bitter effort to regain my composure. The Commodore tweaks his nose and looks at me. Have you anything to live on in the meantime? he questions. No, I reply. I haven't that either. I haven't eaten anything today, but— The Lord preserve you, man! It will never do for you to go and starve yourself to death! He exclaims, feeling in his pocket. This causes a feeling of shame to awaken me, and I stagger over to the wall and hold on to it. I see him finger in his purse, and he hands me half a sovereign. He makes no fuss about it, simply gives me half a sovereign, reiterating at the same time that it would never do to let me starve to death. I stammered an objection, and did not take it all at once. It is shameful of me, too. It was really too much. Hurry up, he says, looking at his watch. I have been waiting for the train. I hear it coming now. I took the money. I was dumb with joy, and never said a word. I didn't even thank him once. It isn't worth while feeling put out about it, said the Commodore at last. I know you can write for it. And so off he went. When he had gone a few steps, I remembered all at once that I had not thanked him for this great assistance. I tried to overtake him, but could not get on quickly enough. My legs failed me, and I came near tumbling on my face. He went farther and farther away from me. I gave up the attempt, thought of calling after him, but dared not. And when, after all, I did muster up courage enough, and called once or twice, he was already at too great a distance, and my voice had become too weak. I was left standing on the pavement, gazing after him. I wept quietly and silently. I never saw the like, I said to myself. He gave me half a sovereign. I walked back and placed myself where he had stood, imitated all his movements, held the half-sovereign up to my moistened eyes inspected it on both sides, and began to swear, to swear at the top of my voice, that there was no manner of doubt that what I held in my hand was half a sovereign. An hour later, maybe, a very long hour, for it had grown very silent all around me, I stood, singularly enough, outside number 11 Tomtegaden. After I stood and collected my wits for a moment, and wondered thereat, I went through the door for the second time, right into the entertainment and lodgings for travelers. 
Here I asked for shelter and was immediately supplied a bed. End of section 10